This special Rosh Hashanah podcast is sponsored by the Gelb, Goldman, and Shaknovsky families in honor of their parents, David and Susan Gelb, wishing them and all of Klal Yisrael and all of our Jewish brethren a happy, healthy, and sweet new year. Shana Tova Umetuka. The festival of Rosh Hashanah is swiftly upcoming. Of course, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the days of awe, of the high holidays, of the 10 days of repentance. It's the beginning of a new year, and it's a very significant day. And of course, we know that Rosh Hashanah marks the day of creation of Adam. Our sages tell us that the world was created on the 25th day of Elul. And day six, when there's this culmination of the plan of creation, Everything is in place. Everything's set up. Everything's ready for Adam. And Adam is created. And this is the fulfillment of the divine plan. Let us create a human who's a hybrid, who's a chimera, who is half this, half that, half angel, half beast, infused with a divine soul, capable of free will capable of either accepting God's dominion or rejecting God's dominion. And thus, day six is really when the world has a purpose. The creation is coming round. There's a fulfillment of the plan. And that is Rosh Hashanah. So it's the day of the creation of Adam. It's also the day, by the way, of Adam's sin and judgment and banishment from the garden. It's the day of the fulfillment of the divine plan. This was always the plan. The creation was not for the angels, not for the higher beings. It was not for the animals, for the lower beings. It was for man. And therefore, this is Rosh Hashanah, not the day of creation, day one, but day six. And thus, this is also the day of the inauguration of God's dominion. Angels have no choice. Animals have no choice. Higher beings have no choice. Lower beings have no choice. They're all acting based upon the pre-existing code. It's instinct. There's no wrestling. There's no dilemmas. There's no uncertainty. There's no balance. It's fixed. Humanity, we can embrace God. We can reject God. Heresy and faith are both within the realm of possibility with humans. And that's what we accept God that transforms God, so to speak, from a ruler to a king, from a Moshel to a Melech. As they just tell us, there is no king absent a nation. There is no king absent another entity accepting the dominion of said king. Angels accept, but they don't really have a choice. Animals accept, but they don't really have a choice. The trees, the constellations, the sun, the moon, the stars, they all submit to God. But there's no option for them to opt out. There's no free will. Only we can coronate God, so to speak, because we can opt out as well. And that's the day when God was originally coronated. That's Rosh Hashanah. So we have all sorts of elements that all intersect on this day. And every year, we mark Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, And all these other elements, all these disparate elements that intersect on this day, they all get revisited and relived. Rosh Hashanah is a day of the creation of man. Well, every year, man is recreated. It's a day of renewal. It's a day of great opportunities. It's a day to start from scratch. It's a day to embark on new beginnings. If this is the day that we were created And this is the day that we are recreated. We revisit that point that was present on day one, meaning on Rosh Hashanah number one. The power of renewal exists on this day. Adam was judged. We're judged. It's a day of judgment. Everyone passes before God like single sheep. Everyone's judged individually. And God became king on that day. And our work, our effort, our prayers, our liturgy, Our mitzvos, our shofar, is there to coronate God anew on this day.
Today, I want to focus on a few aspects of this monumental day with an effort to try to make it more productive and meaningful for us. And we'll start with a question. This is one of the big questions that all the commentaries focus on when discussing Rosh Hashanah. Isaiah tells us that there are 10 days of repentance. It starts off on Rosh Hashanah, you have two days of Rosh Hashanah, and you have a week, and then you have Yom Kippur. And in Rosh Hashanah, our judgment is written down, and then we have some time to appeal the judgment, and it gets sealed on Yom Kippur. That's what we're told in the Talmud. And these 10 days are collectively the 10 days of repentance. And of course, our prayers and the shofar, everything we're doing is trying to get us in the right frame of mind, the right state to repent. And if you look at Yom Kippur and everything that we do on Yom Kippur, it's all about repentance. We subjugate our body. We fast. We don't wear leather shoes. And we confess. The whole day is full of confessions. Ten times. We have ten full, comprehensive confessions. And we're trying to go through the steps of repentance. Repentance starts off with regret. And we lament our behavior, lament our choices, regret the fact that we chose to distance ourselves from God, regret the fact that we created barriers between us and God, regret the fact that we didn't live up to our highest aspirations, and we try to change. We change our behavior. We commit to behave in a better way. And we accept upon ourselves a new path forward for the future. And we confess. And these four stages are the stages of repentance. Yom Kippur, and everything that we do in Yom Kippur is textbook repentance. We painstakingly delineate hundreds of times on Yom Kippur all the various sins, all the various categories of sins that we did. And the emphasis not just to, you know, say it, pay it lip service as they say. We don't want to have insincere, superficial confession. We want to make it real. And that's the emphasis of Yom Kippur, to try to really think about the poor choices we may have made and to regret them and to change the behavior and to commit for the future and to confess. If you were to create a day that's a day of repentance, it would look exactly like Yom Kippur. But Yom Kippur is the last of the 10 days of repentance and Rosh Hashanah is the first. And you examine the day and you pull out your magnifying glass, and examine every element of the day, and you don't see any repentance. Where's the repentance? We don't mention any sin. We don't do any confessions. We don't lament our behavior. There's no mention of sin at all on Rosh Hashanah. Yet, we're told, it's the First of 10 days of repentance. Where's the repentance? Where is the repentance of Rosh Hashanah? What sort of repentance is this? I know repentance. You told me this four steps. You got to regret. You got to commit to the future. You got to change your behavior. You got to confess. We know what repentance is. It's well established. Rosh Hashanah is a day, we're told. It's a day of repentance. And there's none of that. None of the steps, none of the processes of repentance are manifested on this day. How can Rosh Hashanah be considered a day of repentance when there's no repentance? That is a question that all the commentators try to figure out. That's one of the central questions of the day. It's a day of repentance, and we don't see it. It's not immediately evident where the repentance of Rosh Hashanah lies. And there are many answers to this question. I'll give you a classic answer. The classic, maybe the classic answer is that, well, repentance presupposes 
the existence of God. If God doesn't exist in your purview, what's there to repent for? Why are you confessing? What is the idea of a sin? What is the idea of a mitzvah? The whole notion of repentance presupposes, accepts as given that there is a God who gave us instructions, gave us laws, has a certain bar of expectation that he has for us, and we didn't live up to it. But that is all a given. That's understood. But is it understood? You have to spend the whole day, two days really, as a prerequisite for repentance to accept the kingship, the dominion of God. A sin, we define a sin as a repudiation of the will of God. But again, it presupposes that there is such a thing called God. Well, do you actually live by that ideals? Do you accept that really in your bones? And thus to prepare for repentance, a prerequisite for Yom Kippur is Rosh Hashanah. You cannot repent on Yom Kippur, if you don't have all that work, all that development of accepting the the dominion of God, the kinship of God, of acknowledging the existence and dominion of God, of Rosh Hashanah. And thus, it's not actual repentance, but it's preparing us for repentance. And therefore, it's considered a day of repentance. The actual repentance we do on Yom Kippur. But let's get ready for Yom Kippur with Rosh Hashanah. That's a classic answer. And again, the, the way it's the precise way that it would be formulated may be a little bit different, but that's one of the ideas, that you need to have Rosh Hashanah in order to have repentance, and therefore it's not actual repentance. That really is mostly done on Yom Kippur, but it's a prerequisite. Today I want to discuss a different angle to this question, and I think a new view, a novel way to view this whole day of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is, in fact, a day of repentance. But it's of a different sort. It's a different type of repentance. And it's a kind of repentance that seems to ignore the whole idea of sin. Yom Kippur, you cannot escape the notion of sin. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over the course of Yom Kippur, you're going to be mentioning all the various sins, and you're going to be hitting yourself on the chest and talking about all the terrible things that you did over the course of the year. And a lot of us, you know, have a hard time with that. And we say, wait a minute, I don't remember doing any of this. In fact, there was a letter, a famous letter that someone wrote to the Rambam, Maimonides. And he says, I have a hard time confessing on Yom Kippur, because I look at all these sins that I allegedly did, and I look back, a retrospective on my year, I don't remember doing any of them. And the Rambam responded to him, not only did you do some of them, you did all of them, and you do all of them every single day. Because these are just categories. Categories. And unless you're Moshe Rabbeinu, unless you're Abraham, unless you're someone who's a real, fully developed, actualized, righteous person, the subtleties of how you're not living up to your potential that is classified as a sin. So maybe you didn't do the, you know, the, the, the title sin, so to speak, but something you did do. And that's something that you have to address. That's Yom Kippur. There is a form of repentance of Rosh Hashanah that ignores sin. Ignores anything besides for the present. Ignores the past, ignores the future, focuses on the present. How so? Judgment, we always assume, looks at the past and renders a verdict. Rosh Hashanah is definitely a day of judgment that's uncontested. So how can you have judgment that doesn't look towards the past or maybe even to the future? Well, the Talmud tells us. 
The Talmud in the book of Rosh Hashanah, okay, <laughs> obviously, it's the book of Rosh Hashanah, it talks about Rosh Hashanah. On page 16b, Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak says, a person is not judged only as per their deeds of that hour, of that time. A person is judged on Rosh Hashanah, but on what? Only of the deeds of that hour. Ella, Lefi, Maisav, Sha, Only the deeds of that time. This is a very, very novel idea. A person is only judged on Rosh Hashanah as per their deeds of that time. And it quotes a verse, the verse that not coincidentally we actually read on Rosh Hashanah. Genesis chapter 21. Abraham has a son, a troublesome son, Ishmael, and at the urging of Sarah, he banishes him, gives him some water, and kicks him out. And Ishmael and his mother Hagar are not welcome in Abraham's orbit. Abraham's resistant to it, but Sarah insists, and God tells Abraham, Sarah is a greater prophetess than you. You must listen to her. And Abraham does it. And then we follow Hagar and Ishmael, and they're in the desert, and Ishmael's sick. And he's drinking up all the water. And he's dehydrated, and he's parched, and he's unconscious. And she assumes that he's about to die. And she doesn't want to be anywhere near that, so she puts him down and she waits for him to die. And she makes sure that she's a bow shot away, the verse tells us. She doesn't want to be too close. And then an angel tells her, God has listened to the voice of the youth the way he currently is. And she's shown where the water is. And she goes and gives water to Ishmael. And she refills her flask. She refills her jug of water. Ishmael survives. And they go to Egypt. And Ishmael gets married. And he becomes a hunter. Ishmael has this close call with death. And the Talmud focuses on the words of the angel. The angel says, God has listened to the voice of the youth, the way he is right now. What does that mean? So Rashi tells us, the way he is right now, that is how God judged him. And now he's righteous. And yes, in the future, he'll become a sinner. But he's judged the way he is right now. Similarly, says Rabbi Yitzchak, we are judged the way Ishmael is judged, or was judged. He was judged the way he is in the present. We too are judged the way he is in the, the way we are in the present. Now, Rashi gives us some more backstory. What happened over here? Ishmael was on the ropes, about to die. And the angels petitioned to God, let us get rid of Ishmael now. And the, Ish- and the angels looked towards the future and they said, we can foresee that Ishmael is going to cause a lot of trouble. And they particularly focused on one event in the future after the first temple was destroyed. Babylonians come and they destroy the temple and they slaughter countless Jews. And the few survivors are enslaved and sent to Babylon in chains. And along the way, they pass the the Arabian desert and they meet some Ishmaelites. 
Now, Ishmaelites, we have maybe some disagreements, but we're cousins. And the the Jews are desperate, and they're starving, and they're famished, and they're thirsty. And they run over to the Ishmaelites and say, we're cousins, help us. And some Ishmaelites did something very unconscionable, where they began to feed the Jews some food. They stopped food in their mouths, and they gave them salty, salty fish. And that just exacerbated the hunger or the thirst of the Jews. And when they finished eating, they said, give us some water, give us some water. So they took these pouches, these skins of what looked like water, but it was really full of hot air. And they placed it, the Midrash tells us, at the lips of their Jewish cousins, and they smashed all that hot air into their throats, and they killed many Jews like that, which is terrible, terrible, awful. You see these pitiful, pathetic, enslaved, chained Jews, and you deliberately trick them, and you kill them. And the angels, when Ishmael, Ishmael's a teenager, and they see this event in the future, and they tell God, we could rid ourselves of this nemesis. Not nemesis, this nemesis, this menace. The menace and the nemesis. Let's get rid of him now. We could put him away. And all of world history and all of Jewish history will be different if Ishmael doesn't make it out of the desert. That was their argument. Let him die. Good riddance. And God responded. Now, is he righteous or is he wicked? Well, he's righteous, the angels admitted. I am only judging him the way he is right now, says God. Not based upon the future. And that's what the verse means. God heard the voice of the youth the way he is right now. The future doesn't matter. This is the Talmud, the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b. And it's revealing to us this, the system of judgment. How does God judge? Implied from this, this is not just isolated to Rosh Hashanah. It's how God judges in general. We have no reason to believe that Ishmael was on the brink of death on Rosh Hashanah. We have no reason to believe that. But the story of Ishmael reveals to us the system of divine judgment. When someone is being scrutinized by the heavenly tribunal, and the angels maybe would argue that, well, we should kill him. The future is not considered. That is the Talmud. So if you were to ask the question, when God judges a person, what do they look at? What does the heavenly tribunal look like? You would say, well, the present and not the future. Yes, Ishmael and his descendants will eventually become very, very wicked, but but that's not present now. And therefore, we just look at the present. That is the Talmud. And there's a major problem with this. Major problem with this citation. Because we have evidence exactly to the contrary. We see that the Almighty, when he judges, the system of the Torah's judgment looks very, very carefully at the future. And that is most manifested in the story of the Ben Sorer Umore, the wayward and rebellious son. You recall the wayward and rebellious son? A teenager steals money from his parents buy some good meat, some fine wine, eats it in bad company, a troublesome youth. This child is executed. Why? Maybe the child's a little deviant, they misbehave, they're a bit gluttonous. But this does not seem to be something worthy of a capital crime. 
What did they do? They stole some money from their parents. It's not great. They bought meat and wine and they're developing some bad habits. It's not ideal. Oh, and they're eating it with bad company. Mm, not great. But none of us would say that that is something which warrants capital punishment. Maybe send them to military school, give them some tough love, take away their uh, privileges, maybe be nice to them, I don't know. Go the opposite, extra nice to them. But none of us would say that this is something that we should execute someone for this reason. This question is posed by the Talmud itself. And the Talmud says something very novel. He is judged not based upon his current behavior. His current behavior is sort of bad, but it's ultimately kind of innocuous. But the Torah is judging him based upon the future. When there is this constellation of factors, a child, a boy, only a boy, at a very specific age, and a very specific point in their development, and they're developing habits that will become ingrained. They're stealing, and they have a taste, they're developing a taste for meat and wine and bad company. The Torah can forecast where this will go. And the Torah tells us that when we have this unique constellation of circumstances, stealing, adolescent male, developing the characteristics of a glutton, hanging out with low lives, this will begin a pattern that will ultimately result in this child becoming a murderer. And eventually he will keep on stealing from parents and they'll run out of money and then his needs won't be met and he becomes a helpless addict and he's going to go to the crossroads and he's going to steal, plunder from the passerby and eventually he will become a murderer. And therefore, we execute him now when he's still innocent. Let him die innocent and not die guilty because this child will die at the hands of the court. We know that for sure. And therefore, it's better to do it when he's still innocent. At least in heaven, he won't have the crime of murder with him. That is what the Talmud saying. And again, we we cannot forecast the future. But the Torah is telling us, when you have this unique cocktail of circumstances, very specific circumstances, it's only a three-month window from when the child is 13 to 13 and three months. And they have to do a bunch of very specific things that necessarily guarantees the future he'll be a murderer. And therefore we kill him now, not based upon the current behavior, but based upon the future. So the commentaries, of course, have a question. Ishmael tells us we judge him now, not on the future. Ben Soro Amora tells us the opposite. The wayward rebellious son tells us the opposite. We judge him now, based upon the future, not based upon the current behavior. Which is the system of divine judgment? We see a conflict. The Ben Sorer Umor is judged based upon the future. Ishmael is judged not based upon the future, but based upon the present. Which is it? What is the system of divine judgment? There are many answers to this question. One answer, I'll give you one answer that the commentators say. They differentiate between the Ben Sorer Umora and Ishmael. Ishmael, who committed the crime that the angels invoked? It wasn't Ishmael. It was Ishmael's descendants. It was the Ishmaelites, a thousand years after Ishmael. Whereas the Ben Sorumora, it's him, this kid himself is going to commit those future crimes. And maybe that's the difference. When we know for sure that this individual will commit future crimes, well, then we can judge them based on the future. When we don't know that this individual will commit future crimes, but the descendants will, well, then we don't punish him for his descendants. That's one answer. There's another answer 
that will radically reshape our understanding of Rosh Hashanah. It tells us something fundamental. There is no contradiction. Ishmael and the Ben Sora Umor are the same. They're judged exactly the same way. And so are we. They're judged in the following manner. They're judged the way they are today, but not the way they are today in isolation. Sounds like a snapshot of how they are right now, and that's all that is considered. They're judged the way they are today, extrapolated over the course of a lifetime. If you look at a rocket ship and it does lift off and it's, I don't know, a hundred feet, a thousand feet over the ground. What, what, how would you judge that rocket ship? You would say, well, I take a picture. It's a thousand feet over the ground. Okay. It's hovering there. But of course we know the physics tells us that it's going to go all the way into outer space. So how do you judge it right now? You judge it now based upon the way it is right now in isolation? No. You say, well, now it's here, but the amount of thrust and propulsion and the the amount of energy that it has and the amount of movement that it has and the thermodynamics, I'm just saying words, I don't know what they actually mean, but it's actually on its way to the moon. And we can look at it the way it is right now and say, this is where it's heading. That is how we are judged. That's how Ishmael is judged. And that is how the Ben Sora Umar is judged. You judge the way you are right now, but not in isolation. As it plays out, we take this trajectory, this, this slope that you're on, and we play it out all the way to the end of your life. And that's how you're judged. The Ben Sora Umar right now, his behavior does not warrant capital punishment, but his behavior right now, if you were to just play it out over the course of his lifetime, it will result in capital punishment. Because right now he's on this path towards capital punishment, and therefore he's judged the way he is right now, extrapolated over a lifetime. Ishmael, yes, ultimately Ishmael and his descendants will do terrible, grisly, macabre things But if you were to examine Ishmael right now and say, is any element of his current behavior leading us to the impression that he will eventually result in a murderer? The answer is no. They're judged the same. How you are right now, extrapolated over a lifetime. There is uniformity in the system of divine judgment. And this insight... Again, we're told it in the Talmud. This is how the judgment works. And if we flip it on its head, we discover something fantastic. You're judged the way you are right now, right now, right now, right now. But extrapolated over a lifetime. If you take one step of your thousand-mile journey that you need to take until you are completely righteous... But you start the trajectory. You have the lift off. You have the beginning of a process that will result in you perfecting yourself, refining yourself, elevating yourself, transforming yourself. How are you judged right now? You're judged in the same method, in the same way that Ishmael and the Ben Sorer Umore is judged. It's the same. You're judged the way you are right now. But the trajectory, it's charted out over the course of your lifetime. And if you begin an upward incline, if you begin an upward slope, you begin an upward trajectory, you start a process that if you were to play it out over the course of a lifetime, it will result in amazing great things. That's already calculated into your current judgment today. You're judged the way you are today, extrapolated over a lifetime. And this is a revolutionary insight that the Talmud is telling us. We can be very cynical about change. 
oh, the person's changing. Oh, yeah. I remember last week, you also started your diet. And last week, you also began this uh, initiative and what happened? It floundered. How do I know that your change today is real? How do I know it's going to last? How do I know it's not fake? We could all be very cynical, but God is not cynical. And we're told the way you are judged on Rosh Hashanah, it's how you are right now. There's a screenshot. There is a freeze frame of how you are right now, but not in isolation, where you're heading, where's your trajectory. And therefore, when you begin a new path, this is the day that Adam was created, this is the day that Adam is recreated. Humanity gets the opportunity to chart the course for their future. And if you start a trajectory, God looks at it, God judges it as if you've ended that journey along the course that you charted. The verse tells us in Exodus chapter 12, verse 28, that after the nation was told to bring the pastoral offering, they went and they did it. They went and they did it. So the nation is told what they need to do to get a lamb, get a sheep, and watch it for a couple of days, and then and then slaughter it, and then take the blood and put it on the doorpost, and then put it on the uh, spit and roast it, and get ready to, to leave. And they went and they did it. That's what the verse says. 12.28 of Exodus. Vayelchu vayasu. They went and they did it. And the problem is, is that they didn't go and do it. Rashi asked the question, wait a minute, this was said to them two weeks before they were told to go, before they actually were supposed to do it. It was told to them on the first day of Nisan, they were only supposed to do it on the 14th day of Nisan. So how does the verse tell us they went and they did it when they did not go and do it? So Rashi gives us an answer. Citing the Midrash, once they accepted to do it, the Torah judges them as if they did it. This is how the Torah judges someone. You start something, you initiate a process, you embark on a journey, you you begin, you start, you make a decision to do something. The Torah says, it's like, I'm looking at the end of that. Where's this trajectory heading towards? Where's this spaceship going to? It's on the moon already. They already did it. We do look at the future. But the, fu- but the future, based upon your current trajectory, where you are right now, extrapolated over a lifetime. And therefore, we have an incredible loophole here. Repentance on Rosh Hashanah. Where's the repentance? Where's the change that we're supposed to do? Where's the transformation that we're supposed to do? There's a new sort of repentance featured in Rosh Hashanah. And that is to begin to initiate your new self and Get on the right path and find the right trajectory. This is the day that Adam was created. This is the inception of humanity. And this is the opportunity to start new, start fresh. And if you take a step in the right direction, well, how are you judged the way you are right now over the course of this new path, this new course that you are charting. I think it's very hard for us to come to terms with this. We're so cynical. Imagine trying to sell this to someone. Uh, listen, I, I quit smoking today. I didn't have a cigarette today. Today I began to take my health more seriously. Today I 
began to overcome my desire for quick, cheap dopamine. Today I began studying Torah every day. Today I decided to start doing mitzvot with more devotion. We'll say, yeah, okay, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. But that's not how God judges. This person is considered to be righteous. And they're judged like they've done this for 70 years. Because you started today. God judges us today on the journey that we are on, on the trajectory that we are on, as if we have finished said journey. There's a Talmud we like to cite in the book of Kiddushin. It's talking about all the various ways that people can complicate their marriage ceremony. To get married, there's a certain phrase you have to say. Behold, I am betrothing you with this ring. Kedas Moshe of Israel, according to the religion of, of Moshe and Israel, there's a formula you have to say. What if the groom goes rogue? He says, well, I'm going to marry you on condition that tomorrow we have a thunderstorm. Is she married or is she not married? He created a certain condition for this marriage to be activated. If the condition is fulfilled, they're married. If not, they're not married. Suppose you have someone who's really wicked. They're not, they're not righteous. And they say, Behold, I betroth you on the condition that I am completely righteous. And they were not righteous beforehand. You look at their behavior. Everything about their behavior says not righteous. Is she married or is she not married? Does she need a divorce document if she wants to marry someone else or not? Says the Talmud. She's married. Why? Because maybe this man had a stirring of repentance in his heart. He had a stirring of repentance. And that made him completely righteous. Now, the obvious question is, wait a minute, a stirring of repentance. To repent, you have to do real repentance. It's not just a stirring. You have to regret, and you have to commit, and you have to begin a new course, and you have to confess. Where's the repentance of this, a stirring of the heart? So we used to always think, well, the Talmud's telling us, stirring of the heart, that's repentance. But now I think the answer is different. How does repentance start? It starts with a stirring. Well, then it leads towards regret. I feel terrible what I did. Oh, and I'm going to commit to the future, and I'm going to begin a new course, and I'm going to stop behaving in the previous course, and I'm going to confess. The first step is the stirring. And how does God judge a person? How you are right now, based upon the future behavior. So the person did not fully repent, but they started. They started a process that will eventually lead to them repenting and confessing and doing everything they need to do and beginning a process that results in them being completely righteous. And already now, they're judged as such. That stirring, that rumbling feeling in the heart that they may have had, that changes the trajectory. And therefore, they are judged now as if they are a complete tzaddik, because that is the way that God judges. This is an incredible loophole that we discover here in the Talmud. A person is judged the way they are right now, as it plays out in the future. The journey that we embark on Rosh Hashanah, that's what we're judged upon, but we're judged as if we consummated that journey. That's what happened with Ishmael. That's what happens with the Ben Sorer Umora. That is the stirring of the heart 
of the groom who attaches that unusual condition to their marriage. And that's what happened with the Jews in Egypt. They, they wanted to do it. They decided to do it. They committed to do it. It's like they did it. This is an amazing loophole available to us, but it does go further. The Talmud says, you're judged the way you are today. And Rashi says, well, not based upon the future. There's the elephant in the room. There's the dog that's not barking. There's something missing. Rashi's talking about the future. Ishmael in the future, his descendants will behave in a terrible way. The Ben Soromor in the future, they'll behave in a terrible way. What about the past? Isn't judgment about the past? There's a crime and the court adjudicates the crime of the past. The Talmud says, you're judged the way you are right now. And not the future, Rashi tells us. But what about the past? How does that factor in to the judgment of Rosh Hashanah? It seems like it's a, a, a glaring omission in the Talmud. Now, the Talmud does say you're judged the way you are right now. But Rashi says, and not the future, but maybe on the past. To answer this, we have to open up the Jerusalem Talmud. One of the commentators actually cites this. The Jerusalem Talmud clarifies that the judgment is not on the future, and it's also not on the past. Only the present gets factored in to the judgment. So this, we had a loophole. You judge the way you are right now, over the course of a lifetime. If you begin repenting, you start stirring towards repenting, that's already judged as if you finished that. This loophole has now expanded. The judgment of Rosh Hashanah does not consider the future, and it does not even consider the past. It only considers the present. That is what I say just tell us. And again, this is not me talking. This is not, you know, some new age thinking, oh, let's be nice, oh, let's be understanding, let's be forgiving. This is based upon the Talmud. This is what the Talmud says. The judgment of Rosh Hashanah looks at the present, not the past, and not the future. The future may be, yes, only how the present plays out. But there's a form of judgment that ignores the past, just like Adam. Adam didn't exist before Rosh Hashanah. We too, we come into Rosh Hashanah, it's like we didn't exist beforehand. The replaying of the original Rosh Hashanah goes as far as saying the past doesn't matter. That is what the Jerusalem Talmud says, how it clarifies the idea featured in the Babylonian Talmud. And what that means is that Rosh Hashanah itself really matters. Because the way you are on this day, on these two days, that will determine your judgment. And more granularly, what is Rosh Hashanah all about? It's about the coronation of God. So if you were to kind of pinpoint precisely where the judgment of Rosh Hashanah lies, it lies on your behavior of that day. Again, the Talmud says, a person is only judged as per the behavior of that day. What is the behavior of this day? It's the day of the coronation of God. If you were to kind of laser in to the exact point of judgment of Rosh Hashanah, a person is judged by the degree to which they accept the dominion of God on Rosh Hashanah. The deeds of the day. What, what is the deeds of the day? What's happening in Rosh Hashanah? 
God was coronated and he's being coronated anew. To the degree that a person is able to accept the dominion of God in that day, that determines their judgment. The chauffeur, it's all about the coronation of God. The prayer is all about God being a king. It's a, it's a grand coronation ceremony. And the judgment is on, on right now. How much does a person accept that? That's the order of the day, and that is the repentance of the day. It's judgment on a person's receptivity for the dominion of God that's being renewed in this day. Now, of course, previous behavior, it matters, because if a person is totally not in the zone, doesn't even know what's happening in Rosh Hashanah, it's not, has not prepared for this at all, it's very hard for a person to just jump in. And just hear the chauffeur and be awakened and have their, their soul awakened like the Ramam tells us and remember their creator. If you're not prepared for it, you haven't lived a life, uh, a year where you got in the zone, in the mode of even thinking about God. It's very hard to go zero to 60, zero to 100, zero to one on Rosh Hashanah. But nevertheless, there's a major loophole. If a person has an incredible Rosh Hashanah and they live and exist and breathe on Rosh Hashanah with the recognition of God, even if they didn't prepare so much, it's much harder, but even if they didn't and their past is a bit more checkered, the past is not factored in. Only the present is. That is what our Shaders are telling us. The past doesn't matter. It only determines the likelihood of a person being receptive for divine kingship. And this is why it's imperative to have a very, very good Rosh Hashanah. Don't get angry at Rosh Hashanah. If you're in the presence of the divine, there's no reason, there's no grounds to get angry. Don't do any sins on Rosh Hashanah. Really try to experience, to feel the coronation of God when you hear the shofar. Really try to connect with the words of the prayer wherein we're trying to coronate God. That is a way to find a loophole, a shortcut towards having a wonderful outcome on Rosh Hashanah. Now, I want to end off by saying how, how much it matters. The consequences of Rosh Hashanah really matter. And this is the idea I like to revisit every year because it's so important. The Talmud tells us that there are three books that are open in Rosh Hashanah. Those who are righteous live. Those who are wicked die. And those who are in between, half and half. They are, their, their judgment is punted to Yom Kippur. If they repent, then they live. If not, they die. That is what the Talmud tells us, and it's on the same page as the previous Talmud that we mentioned, Rosh Hashanah 16b. And we believe this, right? That's what the Talmud says. We believe it. It's the whole prayer. Who will live and who will die? And the Talmud says, it's not just who will live and who will die over the course of the year. If someone is wicked, they will die instantly. And the obvious question is, wait a minute. We should have an uptick in deaths on Rosh Hashanah. Halfway through the prayers, you know, maybe half the shul should just collapse and die. Because after all, you know, on average, a lot of people are wicked. Maybe most are righteous. I don't know. It's hard for us to judge. But we imagine there's a lot of people that are wicked. So how do the wicked survive? What does it mean that there's judgment and some people live and some people die? And the ones who die, the wicked people, they die right away. Oh, and, and the people who are average in between, their, their fate is determined on Yom Kippur. 
So we should have a, a, a big uptick in deaths on Rosh Hashanah and on Yom Kippur because not everyone takes those 10 days of repentance seriously. This is a fundamental question as well. And there are a variety of answers. For one, the Tosfos on that same page, 16b, tells us that, well, life and death doesn't mean life and death in this world. It means life and death in the world to come. Did a person have a good 5783, 5782, 5784, etc.? Will this year result in a year in Olamaba? Did this year result in them earning eternity? That's one answer. Another answer that is offered is that, well, our soul, it's uh, comprised of, I don't know, lots of different components. And they will die, but not completely. They'll still have a little strand of soul left. And they'll lose vast parts of their soul. And thus, relatively, they're going to die. That's another idea. But listen to this. The wicked die on Rosh Hashanah. They're dead, dead, dead. But what would happen if we could look at, just imagine, if we look look at the obituaries. Day after Rosh Hashanah, there's a thousand entries. Day after Yom Kippur, also a thousand entries. How would that change our life? Wouldn't that torpedo our free will? What would happen if all the sinners, they all just die instantly on Rosh Hashanah? Then anyone who's still alive, they lose their free will. The wicked, they die on Rosh Hashanah. But it's imperceptible because they're kept alive, not as livers, people who are alive, but they're there to create an arena of free will for everyone else. We talked about this earlier. There's a reason for creation, and that is for the free will of humanity. Well, what about the birds, and what about the salamanders, and what about the angels, and what about the galaxies, and what about the plants and the grass? Why does everything else exist? If the creation was about man, if Rosh Hashanah's day six... Why do we have all that preparation? The answer is, is that the Almighty created man to have free will and to make choices and to hopefully accept the dominion of God willfully, independently. But everything else that exists, that is to create the environment, to create the set in which man can exist. The purpose of the world is for man and only man. Everything else, everything else, that's the environment in which man can fulfill the will of God or the, the, the reason for creation. So the angels and the animals and the trees, everything else, it's just there as the set, as the furniture, as the environment, as the background. They are NPCs in the game of life. Even humans can be part of the environment. Even humans can be dead by the Torah standards and still appear to us to be alive. And that's the judgment of Rosh Hashanah. If you're wicked, you're not a player in this game of free will, of the whole world hanging in a balance, of you getting to determine what happens in the world, of you determining whether God's presence is felt in the world or not. Of you having to wrestle and to, to deal with the, the crises of, of being alive and the challenges of being alive and the difficulties, the balance and the Yitzhara and the, the, the soul and pulling you each direction, you having to make choices and to overcome and to develop fortitude to overcome those challenges. That's the definition of being alive. That's, that's Adam. <laughs> that is the humans. There are, there are humans today. They're not part of it. They're still alive. They appear to us to be alive. But they don't have that same balance and that same free will, that same uncertainty where they have to make choices and their choices matter 
and those choices reverberate for all eternity. They're alive, but they're only alive for the benefit of those who are making choices. And that's the judgment. If you accept the dominion of God, you're saying, I want to play. I want to be part of this. I want to be like Adam. I want to matter. And those are righteous and, and they live by the Torah standards. They're alive like Adam. And people are not interested. They don't want to accept the dominion of God. They don't want to be part of this, 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 this incredible arena of free will. They die. Now that they're kept alive by our, the way we view it because they're part of the environment, like the animals, like the trees, like the angels, like the plants, like the, like the galaxies. That's part of the environment in which those who are truly alive by the Torah's standards live. And that's, I think, even scarier than actually dying is to be dead by the Torah standards, but to be kept alive for the benefit of others. And there's something really beautiful about it. The Talmud tells us, this is not on page 16b, it's on page 32b in the book of Rosh Hashanah. The Talmud tells us that the dead are judged on Rosh Hashanah as well. The dead are judged on Rosh Hashanah as well. What does that mean? The dead, the dead are dead. <laughs> if someone's been dead, they died in the 1700s. They haven't done anything in this past year that would warrant any judgment. Why are the dead being judged? This is the answer. Someone could be dead by the Torah's standards. They're, they're functionally, they're effectively dead because they're not playing the game of Adam. They're an NPC. But they too can be resurrected. They could change from being the furniture, from being part of the set, from being an extra, from being part of the environment. And they say, I want to accept the divinity of God. I want to be part of this. I want to have that struggle, that challenge, that the incredible tension between my soul and my Yitzhahara and my commitment to God on one hand and my instincts and impulses to reject that. On the other hand, I want to matter. And they could go from being dead to being alive on Rosh Hashanah. And again, for us, we don't know who's actually playing and who's just part of the environment. We don't know. But that is the judgment. Do you want to matter? Do you want to be like Adam? Or do you want to be like all those other things that came before Adam? There were lots and lots and lots of things before Adam. All sorts of trees and all sorts of angels and all sorts of other higher beings and the sun and the moon and all that. But none of them have free will. None of them are actually playing. They're not actually alive by the Torah's standards. And the Rosh Hashanah, it's determined, are you a player? Do you matter? Do you matter? And if you, if not, you're, you're dead right away. That's it. Okay, maybe next year you have another chance. And to us, they look alive. We can't tell the difference. They're still chewing and they're still digesting and the body works perfectly fine. But in the grand scheme of things, in the purpose of the world, they're dead. We all want to matter. We want to have a say. We want to be players in this game. We don't want to be part of the set. We don't want to be the background uh, environment, the furniture. We don't want to be extras just in the game of life. Who will live and who will die? Who's going to matter? Who's going to be like Adam and who will be like the animals. They're, they're not, they're not actually players. We want to matter. We want to impact the world. We want to have a say into, in determining the direction of the world, in determining the fate of the world. Being dead effectively renders a person to being part of the set. And yes, some will live, some will die. Physically, but people could be alive, in our view, and totally not a player in the divine esteem of things. That's why this is a day of judgment that really, really, really matters. And what's the judgment? What is the judgment? It's not on the future. It's not on the past. It's on the present. And what is happening on the present? It's the coronation of God. 
Do you want to have a say? Do you want to be someone who is conflicted, like Adam was, drawn on one hand towards faith, drawn on the other hand with the serpent towards anti-faith? Do you want to have that tension? Do you want to have to live the struggle of humanity? Do you want to have the great upside of humanity as well? Do you want to really live? Or do you want to be window dressing for the life of others? It's a stark contrast between people. They, they, to us, they look, look the same. Humans, they can smile. They, uh, their hair grows. Their fingernails grow. They need to eat. They need to drink. Animals do that as well. What differentiates the human from the animal? Why is Rosh Hashanah on day six, not on day one of Genesis? Why? Because this is what matters. May we all merit to have a productive Rosh Hashanah. May we all merit to accept the kinship of God, the dominion of God, and really understand what that means. It means that we want to live. Who will live and who will die? We all want to live. And we learned an incredible loophole that the judgment of Rosh Hashanah, not in the past, not in the future, on the present. And therefore, to the best of our ability, we should prepare for that. Prepare for that grand day. And there's a form of repentance that omits everything, that ignores everything besides for what happens on that day. The acceptance of the dominion of God. May we all be so fortunate to have a very uplifting, meaningful, and productive Rosh Hashanah, and may we be counted amongst those that are alive, are living, and contributing towards the advancement of the agenda of Abraham, the advancement of the agenda of humanity, helping bring about the glorious day where God is one and his name is one, known to all in the world. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.